Good morning, listeners. You're welcome to this week's Ag Report. I'm Jim Finn. We're going to look back at some of the interviews I did in the past year. And just to say to you, please ignore any events that are taking place and the dates at which they are taking place on, because all those dates have now passed. Listeners, I have two guests now, and uh, both of them are foresters. They have forestry on, on their farm. I have Mary McCormack, and Mary is from Killinall, and I have Paddy Stokes, and Paddy is there from around Kilsheelan. And they have great concerns with regard to ash dieback. So good morning, Mary, and good morning, Paddy. Good morning. Now, Paddy, I believe you're going to start off. So tell us a little bit about this ash dieback and the problems that you're having with it. Well, ash dieback became apparent in Ireland about 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a lot of lip service given to compensation of growers, but nothing was ever done other than there were three schemes brought in. The schemes were worse than useless. They were they were only creating a liability. And it's it, I'm a member of the Limerick Tipperary Woodland Owners. As a group, we have decided that the time has that the time has come uh, to bring an end to what I can only call a scandal. Yeah. This ash dieback was brought in to the re- negligence and repeated negligence of the Forest Service. In the first place, continuing to give licenses for the importation of plants from areas of Europe where the infection had spread. And secondly, the failure of the inspectors of the Forest Service to refuse entry to the plants into the country when they were infected. So in in our in my view, the full liability lies with the Forest Service and therefore with the government. There, ha- As I said, there have been three schemes. The most recent scheme was a scheme introduced three years ago by the then minister, Mr. Doyle, who got 18 million from the government. Coincidentally, on the same week, another branch of the government, that is to say Tagus, valued the loss of timber at that stage at 800 million euros. In other words, the government were offering two and a quarter percent compensation. I don't think that the revenue commissioners would take two and a quarter percent as a full final settlement of a revenue bill. This scandal has has gone on and has dragged on. And I suppose COVID didn't help it either. But now that we're more or less in the clear again, we are going as a movement to get full compensation. It is important that I point out that we're not looking for anything that's not available to other sectors. There is a bovine tuberculosis eradication scheme, which the government has operated for the last, this year it has been operated for 70 years. That scheme gives full compensation to herd owners unfortunate enough to have animals infected with tuberculosis. And we we, we don't see any reason why the growers of ash should not get full compensation. In fact, it is my view that not giving compensation to ash growers is a form of apartheid. Right, it's 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 the wrong treatment. Uh, Paddy, can you pass me over there to Mary? Uh, uh, Mary wants to uh, have a chat with me as well. Mary? Yes, Tim. Uh, Mary, you you want to hear a kind of bit of the history of this. So what what is the history about that? Well, uh, most woodland owners hmm. will tell you the story yeah. of of how they see the problem. Right. And I noticed in maybe 2012 
that there was something not right. And I thought was that we'd had a very good summer. And mm-hmm. I thought these trees aren't looking great. But I thought was that it had they had dried out and hadn't had enough rain, etc. And then I said, oh well, maybe maybe some of them aren't too bad and whatever. But we'll keep an eye on them. Not too long afterwards, in the press there was mention of this this ash dieback disease, and that it had spread from Eastern Europe and different different versions of how it came to be in our forests mm-hmm. and that we would probably lose 10 or 20 percent of our trees and we were we were shocked when we heard this and then I said well you have to be practical about these things because you know you'd be thinning trees anyway and we'll work around it and I spoke to foresters and talkers people and whatever and they said well no don't worry don't hang on in there now don't worry so this progressed on and everything I read or researched it the story was getting worse so and I had a very good Tagus man and he's still he's still with us and he was he, he'd arrive in at any time and he'd say we'll go and have a look here and he said to me you did if you, if you want to have this tested you don't have to if you want to be sure that this is what you have this is the problem he said so it was sent off Samples were sent off and, of course, they came back positive. Then it was, where do we go from here? So I started going up to Dublin, meeting the Forest Service, uh, meetings with the minister. I sat around a big table with six or seven of the minister and his officials, and they were all very sympathetic. They were saying, yes, but, you know, um, hang on in there now and there there will be a scheme. And I said, like, how am I to be compensated for this and they said no leave us with us now but you do know that there is this compulsion that you have to replant mm-hmm. so i said well I, I want a lot of information before i even dream of replanting again um it doesn't make sense so they said well wait for this forestry review so we waited and i went to meetings and i told them this forestry review was nearly ready and then we were told to be a midterm review and months passed and we didn't ever really hear anything on the midterm review and we were getting more irate and the stories from other the stress on other people who were depend solely dependent they had no other income and they were dependent on the thinnings from their ash and then the final and hurley butts because that the scheme was really sold to us of course, as yeah. the benefit from hurley butts and as you know, it's a big a big thing in Tipperary, there are Hurleys, and Killanall has a, a long history of mm-hmm. Hurley makers. There was actually a film made in my place, and it was all about ash trees and, and the wonderful thing, the, cla- the cash of the ash and the clash of the ash. I can't remember what they called it at the time. Yeah. And it was all promoting it, so that was fine. We waited for, we waited for the report, and then we were told um, that James McKinnon, a Scottish expert on forestry who had turned forestry around about in Scotland and he's a very renowned man, that he was going to review the whole forestry service. And um, when that report came out, that the, the government then would take the advice and they'd move forward. And that went on and on. And then we, two of members of our of our um, Limerick Tipperary Woodland were invited up for the date was published, only to be told, well, actually, we had 
we thought it better not to include Ash Dieback on the McKinnon, the McKinnon report, even though Mr McKinnon said that it was one of the biggest reasons for the fallback in the confidence in forestry, but that he had been asked to leave that one side and to deal with the other problems of forestry. Now, we were we were totally, totally devastated at that stage. And then we started back up onto meetings and meeting officials. And they came. We had um, the minister was we went to Carlo to meet him and we went here and there, got nowhere. And then we were told that Joe Harris was coming to review. Once Pippa Hackett became um, yeah. in charge of it, she invited Joe Harris, um, and another Scottish lady, I believe, who's very knowledgeable on it, to review the McKinnon review. Oh. So from there, we, I, we, I never heard anything anymore. That was the end of that. She did her, her work. And then we heard that Project Woodland was being put in place to look all the forestry and it was going, it, there were people from the industry. There was a lot of people from environmental sections there, which is very important because trees are probably the most, the best thing for the environment. And there were officials of the department and this went on and we waited and we waited. There was one or two then from forestry to represent us. Yeah. There were growers and um, the minister selected them and they were, I believe they were all, had a lot to say and somebody from the IFA had representation mm-hmm. on that. And that was wound up recently. But there's no mention of Ash Dieback. There's nothing, there's other problems, there's a lot of other problems. Um, yeah. But no mention of Ash Dieback. So we we were onto our IFA rep and they said they, they would be having um, a conference on forestry. And then other things cropped up in that everyone knows about. In the meantime, right. that took up took up a lot of time, and that they would be post, they were kind of postponing the Ash Dieback conference. So we said, look, right, you have to deal with other, lots of problems, but we were just so tired of being pushed sideways. So we contacted the GA, and they offered offered us the dome there. They advised yeah. said we could have it whatever date we picked, as long as there was nobody else using it, we could we could use it. So we picked this date. We're between St Patrick's weekend yeah. and Easter. And we've had a lot of contact from people, Kerry, Cork, um Gilkenny mm-hmm. people. We're promoting it as best we can and we're expecting a good crowd on the twenty fifth. A yeah. lot of that will be people want to voice voice their concerns, but they also want some some inkling of good news, some bit of good news for going forward. Can they clear their land? Can they be exempt from, ha- from having to replant? They want compensation. They want to know how they are actually going to salvage what's left of the timber because it is dangerous at this stage. You cannot, for the last two years, you cannot allow anyone in with a chainsaw into a Nash dieback plantation. And it's it's difficult enough to get men with um, machines to go in because they don't know what they're going into. Every every place is different. And, you know, there is a shortage at the moment of contractors, mm-hmm. a shortage of drivers and workers. But we want to get out the timber and sell and salvage what we can, then decide what kind of 
reclamation work needs to be done on our forestry. When I planted the first day, all I really wanted was a living yeah. out of my farm. And I wanted, I wanted to grow trees. I just... I always had a thing about trees. Unless Paddy really wants to come back, uh, we'll just uh, tell the listeners of the, what's happening on next Saturday. Well, next Saturday there will be a conference. It'll be an information conference, but it'll be also um, to gauge how much support there is and eventually after 10 years to get a movement which will put pressure on the government to properly compensate ash growers. That listeners was Mary McCormack from Killinall and Paddy Stokes from Kilchilin. Last May, they opened a walk in Clonakenny along the banks of the River Nore. I was there and I met some of the locals and I asked them what they thought about it. Who have I here? Michael Costigan. No, Michael. So this place is full of Costigan. She's full of Costigan. Do I know what Costigan I ha- even well, have, I'm Michael? I'm uh, Costigan at the post office. Oh, yeah. Have you land out there now that they're walking on, Michael? I have. I, I have. I have the, the, the first step. Yeah, the first step. The first, first step is mine. Oh, the yeah. first step is yours. So when I go across the road here now and you're, 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 get over yes, the thing, yes. I'm on... You're, you're, you're on my ranch, yeah. yeah okay. What do you think of it now, people walking through your land? Well, well going by today... There seems to be a huge interest in it. I know there was always a great walking interest, but uh, I I don't mind at all. I love to see a bit of life around the area, and uh, it's good. For, we're we're a forgotten part of Tipperary, uh, and um, well, no, you're not that forgotten. You had a bishop and everything here today. We, well, we had we about? had today, yeah, but um, no, it, it's uh, untarnished. But, by tourism or that, you know. Oh, yeah. So it's nice, nice to see uh, a bit of life. And um, as I said to you before, yeah. a lot of people don't know where the Nor come out of. Uh, if you go down Kilkenny and that, they don't know where it's yeah, coming from. And it's, it's only about two and a half miles up there out of uh, a spring in a field, uh, it starts. And, and it has a very humble beginning. It's just a little stream. It comes down through Honey Mount. And... Um, the first mill that was on it is, is there in Summerhill and the plan was to uh, to dam the, the file the, the, the Nore ran along a glacier track yeah. and uh, they were going to dam the file there and drive the mill but uh, stories go that, that, that there was never a bag of cardin ground in it but the mill is there after being all done up and newly refurbished and it looks very well people living in it they use it as a holiday home and um, it comes on then down far the village it's still very small Montour, passes right by Montour Creamery Montour Creamery yeah. is built on the on the banks of it and um, just before it comes to the village there two little rivers hit it, one from each side, the Shanatloon River and the Steels Park River and they give it a big lift coming into the village here and um, gives it a, an extra little bit of momentum and then of course as it leaves the village here and flows on for Derry Moor well Corrigan and on for Derry Moor, it's gathering momentum all the time and um, as you know, then, as it heads on for, for, for Castletown and that, it's, it's, a, it's a very respectable river. But it's in its infancy up here. Right, Joe, and it's very... Fun. Is there any hope in to the future now, and I'm addressing both yourself and Tim here, that we would be, you would be able to get the walk to go to 
uh, the spring where it rises? Yeah, well, I mean, that will all depend on, on the farmers um, back up along. Um, We'll, we'll, we'll try anyway, that's all we can do. And, you know, a group like ours, that's all we can do. We can't force people into anything. We, we have to take things nice and slow and, and, and just ask them and respect. Respect is a big thing with, with us, for, for our farmers, you know. And, uh, I mean, as I say again, the only farm we wouldn't have anything. So that's, that's, that's as Michael says, you know, we, it starts very, very small up there. And, uh, a man there the other day he, he's part of the Norvision he he rang me from, from Kilkenny and he says I was up there he says looking for the source of the Nor and he says I was sent here there and everywhere he says but eventually I found it I found it and, and he says there was two little bits coming out of, two little streams coming out of the hill and he says he didn't know which one was the start of it so but that's the field that it comes out of and yeah that's because there would be very interesting history if we could uh, develop the two rivers. Now, I know you're interested in the Nore, but the Shore is up there as well, isn't it? Well, the Shore is only, did you say, a stone's throw? Oh, well, it's about 200 but yards it, up. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. a good It's throw. about that there. Yeah, yeah. but uh, the rise out of it is yeah. the one area. Um, yeah. one, one of them is in Kremlin and the other is just Borough Snow. Oh, so it's yeah. same, the same hill, same range. Are they a mile apart? A mile apart at one stage when yeah. they move down along. We'll say, they'll be close enough when they, when they rise. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's what I mean. They're close enough when they, when they rise. Yes. Well, look, lads, it's a pleasure having a chat with you. And you uh, it's been a great day, Tim. Yeah, and, and, uh, and, uh, and may there be many more like it up here. And I'd like to thank you for, for, for coming and, 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 and for coming the other night into the, to the down your way. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll hear that eventually we'll when, hear, it, when, hear when, that. It, when yeah. it goes out. Yeah. Okay, thanks a million, lads. Thanks, Tim. Thank thanks. you. The next person I caught up was, was Trish Ryan. And Trish has just come back after walking the walk here in Tonyakenny today. Trish, what was it like? It's a beautiful walk. It? It's really, really lovely. Um, all the fairy doors on the trees. We had a little girl with us, Searsha uh, Fletcher, and she walked the whole way all around, and it's really beautiful. We came out at um, just below Nicholas Cody's, and we walked back the road then into the village. But you can go on a little bit further down into Kailana Lane and out onto the main road, and that's just a little bit further. But it's really lovely, and there, I believe there's going to be seating and everything put down so people can sit down and read a book or just have a little think to themselves but it's it's really really very beautiful tell me this have you earned that mug of tea you have in I your hand i most absolutely have and the scone <laughs> to go with it yeah right and um so you would recommend this to anybody oh, I would. you it's don't a... have to be very fit to do it. no no absolutely not and you're walking through the fields it's not like you're walking on a hard road you're walking through the fields and the styles and everything it's really really pretty i have to say really lovely and to look at all the flowers along the bank of the river and it's beautiful would you be into nature yourself I would now? yeah, yeah. And I, I walk every day I walk every right. single day yeah. so well, that's the uh, walking part of it yeah, yeah. what about the nature and this biodiversity it, we yeah hear it's so beautiful much about? well look there's all all the trees along and the yeah. paths are cleared and, and everything is lovely there's lots to it's very now today it was very quiet um, mm-hmm. we were the first kind of to take off there was a few of us and like I said we had uh, Saoirse with us and she walked the whole way, so it's not a difficult walk. Very, very nice, easy walk. And you can take it at whatever pace you want. You don't have to do it fast. And who's responsible for all these fairy things that are up on Well, there? I'd say the committee. Yeah. They, they were all... They 
put up all that stuff. It's it's really that, that's the first time I've done it. So um, no, it's really very nice now. And of course, the, these fairy things that they have hanging, they're, they're a special attraction for, for young the, people, for the children. kids. And yeah, and, yeah. and Saoirse was taking note of them all. She oh, right. saw them all, and there's bird houses and things like exactly. that. And I believe there's going to be much more. There's going to be seating. Yeah. And so I have so I've heard. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's really very nice. Are you going to do it? I am going to do it now when I finish talking to you. And I'm, after, I'm telling the lads I've sent two of my friends. Uh, one of them is 82 and the other is 90. Oh, fantastic. Uh, gone off. I'm just wondering will I ever catch up with them. But anyway, you probably won't. I don't think I, I <laughs> but don't it is. That. And you can, you can cut the walk off yeah. anywhere you like and okay. come back. You can do the first style and come back, come turn back. right and come back to the village. You, you don't have to do the whole thing. But okay. it, it really is lovely. I will do. Look at Trish. Thanks very much You're for very having welcome. the chat. No problem, thank you. There you are, listeners. There's Trish. She's, she's walked it and really enjoyed it. Uh, listeners, uh, during uh, the interview, it's here in Clannacenny on the opening of the Source of the Noor walk. Michael Murray's name has come up quite a bit. Who uh, Michael, as you know, is the CEO of Norterbury Development Company and, of course, Clannacenny man as well. And Michael arrived here to this particular day in his own home parish and luckily enough I got a chance to have a few words with him. Michael, I know that Norterbury Development Company were heavily involved with the committee here and it must be, uh, you know, it must be great for you to feel that uh, the community here have come together and developed this walk and have plans to go an awful lot further and probably will be knocking on your door. Yeah, it's a great afternoon, and and um, it's great to see the the out the outcome of the committee's work, and I suppose there has been great voluntary work in the village, going back twenty or twenty five years, as you can see around, yeah. and I suppose the river now is the next phase in in the development, and the work that the committee has done in in getting um, the agreement and partnership with landowners, and promoting the river walk, is. Um, and the turnout today, it's great to see, and shows the level of, of community and involvement in the parish. Yeah, and as we sit here now on what is a beautiful Sunday afternoon, and we're watching young children walking that walk. Yeah, it's great to see, and um, 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 hard, to, hard to credit it, really, um, mm-hmm. to, to see the large number of cars and driving into the village. And... Um, to, to, to see the scenery and the, and the activity and the number of families that have mm-hmm. are, are, are partaken in the walk and um, so great great credit and, and great to see and yeah. it, com- it comes down to a, 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 a good community and good working together yeah and a lot of work has gone into uh, even just the work for just today uh, you know we're sitting here on a lovely bench outside the church but and we're looking at the cherry blossom and they have flags in between the cherry blossom they really have gone out of their way yes great pride yeah and great preparation and the village is looking immaculate and always with events in Clannacenny that level of effort and work and, and pride will go in. So a great, great sense of pride. And I suppose it is a small community and a small parish, but that brings great camaraderie and loyalty. OK, well, look, we'll leave it at that. Thanks very much for having a few words and in what has been a great day for the parish of Clannacenny. Thank you, Jim. Back in June, a course entitled A Postgrad in Dairy Technology and Innovation 
was launched in University College Cork. I spoke to Bridie Corrigan Matthews about that course and other courses related to the dairy business. Bridie is with me to tell me all about a postgraduate diploma in dairy technology and innovation that's in University College Cork. Good morning, Bridie, and thanks very much for joining us. Good morning, Jim, and thank you for having us on the show. So, look, uh, I, my name is obviously Bridie Corrigan Matthews. I'm the network director with the Taste for Success Skillnet, one of 70 Skillnet Ireland networks. And on Monday, the 19th of, of June at 8.30, we are very excited and very honoured to have uh, Minister Simon Coveney, who is the Minister for Enterprise, Trade and Employment, the President of UCC, and also the Chief Executive of Skillna Ireland, um, and other special invited guests who, from, the, from across the dairy and the dairy sector who will be attending the launch uh, at the Aula Maxima um, at UCC uh, in Cork. The whole purpose of the event is that we are launching a new diploma, uh, a postgraduate diploma in dairy technology and innovation and also a new master's programme. So these are brand new for the sector, brand new to Ireland, and they are part of a specialised pathway for um, dairy professionals so that they can continue to upskill, so that we can continue to create the best talent uh, in Europe and beyond, and that we will also be offering um, other programmes, which we call bridging programmes, that will allow those who uh, want to enter the sector, but who may not have got a food science or a food science-related degree, that they will be able to take these shorter programmes and uh, then, you know, access the, the, the more in-depth programmes such as the, the PG Diploma in Dairy Technology and Innovation and then move to the Masters. So it's a very exciting progression and development for the dairy sector in Ireland. OK, Bridie, now well, let's look first of all at the Diploma. Can you give me a flavour of one of the modules? OK, so... The, the diploma, uh, in particular, will cover a number of very specific areas, um, such as food science, nutritional sciences, microbiology, microtechnology, and um, some specialist dairy science mm -hmm. pro uh, topics. So it is designed to be a blended, flexible, part-time learning basis so that this allows people to work and study at the same time. And what's its duration? The duration of the PG diploma is two years. So it's, um, it's designed to take people along a, an intensive journey mm. so that they can then, you know, progress to a master's level. And this is where we're seeing um, the drive for talent and skills and knowledge and competencies for the sector. Bridie, what's the duration of the master's programme? Again, the master's programme is designed to be fit for industry and enterprise purpose. So this is also a year-long master's programme in dairy technology and innovation. 
building on the uh, two-year postgraduate diploma and it's it will focus on a, on a particular area of dairy science that will be agreed with the individual and the uh, mm -hmm. professor who is overseeing their master's program so it's uh you know it's not a two or a five year masters it's a one year masters to build on the in-depthness of the previous stackable programs that an individual can undertake and we all know, and let's get back to the beginning of it, we all know that uh, technology has jumped forward significantly in the last 10 years and maybe even more so since COVID. So I presume a lot of this will be delivered uh, online by Teams or Zoom or some other platform. Well, we will have what we call a blended approach. Right. But, uh, but for certain elements, for certain modules, they will be required to attend, um, you know, on, on, mm -hmm. on site on campus at UCC, uh, where there is particular laboratory, let's say, tutorials and, and other elements. But I suppose, you know, you are right in saying that there is, you know, it's a, it's a changing world. We're seeing a huge opportunity for the sector to add value to what we already have. You know, it's we can't keep producing and producing uh, mass volumes without adding value to that. So what these programmes are designed to do is to create a pathway model for dairy that is highly innovative and is unique. And that's supporting the sector to build a pipeline of suitably qualified dairy professionals and what we do know, as with every other sector, we are facing a rapidly evolving skills needs in um, processing, manufacturing, data analytics, digitization, and also sustainability. So the diploma, the PG diploma, the two-year diploma, and the one-year master's will build on those gaps and those skills to develop those competencies across the sector. And is it envisaged, Friday, at any stage during the two years or the final year to do the Masters that participants would have access to the excellent facilities that we have down in Moorpark, which isn't too far away from UCC? Well, absolutely. And, I mean, the relationship with UCC and, and Chagas um, at Moorpark is very is a very close one and a very long one and has a great history. So the original PG certificate, which is a, a one-year program that's a post-grad certificate in dairy technology and innovation, was developed initially between uh, Chagas and UCC. And from that time, from about 2018, this is where Taste for Success Skillnet has uh, come on board to work with UCC to help fund the development of the new PG Diploma uh, Programme and the Master's Programme, which are the programmes that are being launched on Monday by the Minister uh, for Enterprise, Trade and Employment, Simon Coveney, and the uh, President of UCC and our Chief Executive, Paul Healy, from Skillnet Ireland. But when does it actually start? Is it the next academic year, which normally that starts is, next September? That is correct. So we will be open for registrations following the, um, or if, you know, if people are hearing this now, by all means, they can contact the university or they can contact Taste for Success Skillnet 
um, on dub dub dot dot taste for success and that's T A S T E for S U C C E W S dot I E and we can register them. But yes, the programmes, uh, both the PG uh, diploma yeah. and the masters are scheduled to kick off um, in September, late mid to late September. Friday, before I let you go, is there anything else you would like to say? Jim, there is. I think one of the, re- the, the key important messages here is that the specialised pathways and the bridging programmes that we have developed with UCC for the dairy sector will allow people who are either in the sector that don't have the necessary or current science qualifications or those looking to come into the sector from areas such as bio or pharma or medtech to undertake these short focus programs and to build those science skills that will then allow them to take up uh, either jobs in the sector or to progress onto further education in the sector. Okay, well, look, thanks very much for that, Bridie. That listeners was Bridie Corrigan Matthews. Listeners, my next guest is somebody we haven't had on for quite some time. I thought she was lost up there in the Midlands, but I don't think that's the case uh, because Alma Jordan of AgriKids, now she has a new book out, so I'm quite sure that she was working behind closed doors for quite some time. Good morning, Alma, and thanks very much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Jim. Thank you. Great to have you back on. How has AgriKids been going since uh, we last spoke, and I can't remember when? <laughs> oh, well, sure, it's business as usual. As soon as kind of the uh, schools close their doors, the, the, the shows and events yes. take off. So it's, it's been very busy over the last number of months visiting shows around the country. I have a I have an interactive mobile vehicle, uh, the Farm Safe Roadshow, uh, which is on the road as often as I can get it onto the road. We've just come from the International Sheepdog Trials in Blessington. And the day prior to that, uh, Balbritton Garden Station had their community open day. So it was wonderful to have farm safety included in what would probably be considered more of an urban audience. So um, it was just great to be able to interact, engage and, and, and chat with everybody not just about farm safety, but also about farming, which I'm very, very passionate, uh, you know, in, in, in including in these conversations. So, you know, farming and non-farming communities can all connect because uh, I, I do feel we, we have a bit of a disconnect when it comes to, to farming and non-farming. Right. Can I ask you a question then? You know, you've been yeah. around quite some time and uh, I've been on about farm safety for as long as I have been doing this particular programme here in Tipperary. You know, are we making any headrows? We don't seem to be, I suppose, uh, are we getting that message out? You know, I think people are starting to realise that it's not just a case of telling people how to be safe. I think it, this, and this for me with AgriKids, mm-hmm. and this was a big driver with AgriKids, is about including more and more people in this conversation and making it something that becomes instinctive to all of us and to, to, to support the message, not to be forcing the message, but to be supporting the message. And when I talk about that, I talk about let's get our children talking about it. Let's get it into our schools where it does have a place. And I, I've managed to find a niche there, but also... Um, making sure that we talk to those companies, to those organisations who profiteer from farming. Are they involved in making sure that our primary producers, that their safety and their well-being is valued as much 
as their product is. And, and you know, luckily I have, you know, found quite a few sponsors and supporters who operate within the agri sector to help me with my work. But this really is part of a much, much bigger conversation. And a lot of people talk about the culture of farming and the behaviours and all that, that kind of thing. But everybody has to get involved with the safety message. You know, it, it's not just, you know, to direct it at farmers on their own is not enough. The whole farm family unit, the community and the whole sector, we all have to, we all have a huge role to our play. Um, unfortunately, you know, the uh, stats are the very sobering reality of all of this. You know, it, it's, it's, it's year on year, 50% of all workplace fatalities are happening on our farm. So until this message is properly supported and and adhered to and acknowledged, well, then you know what? Those stats aren't going to change. And, and for me, that is both heartbreaking, but also a great motivator too, because where I have started to see a lot of progress is with our younger communities, is with our children. And being able to give a voice to that silent majority who feel sometimes they may not have a, you know, a say in the safety within their own home or within their own community, but knowing that you know their feelings and their instincts are actually true and are relevant and have a place and making sure that they have a voice in all of this. Because believe it or not, I have found quite a few people out there who, who do feel quite strongly about certain things and practices that they're seeing in their own community, but never before felt brave enough or confident enough to actually address it. These people are starting to find a voice now. And so they are where I find a little bit of confidence in, on this, this topic. Because you and I know that the stat we usually get is some is a fatality, but behind every one of those fatalities, there are a whole lot of near misses, and that has a terrible effect on the farm family as well. Because if somebody loses a limb or an arm or bad a bad head injury, that has an effect on the farm as well, Alma. Absolutely. As devastating, I'm, I'm very um, fortunate mm-hmm. to do work with Embrace Farm also. And, and, and that keeps me very grounded and very focused on what, you know, what we are trying to achieve here. And there are some real cases out there of people who have had the, the near miss, but they've had a life altering injury. And these people are adjusting to a brand new normal that has a ripple effect, not just for the for those affected, but for those within the family who are equally impacted and and people must realize that you know when when an accident happens on a farm you have the emotional but you have a very practical situation emerging where you have people who are left you know charged with the with the need to to run a farm to feed the animals the cows still need to be milked the harvest still still needs to come in you know all that paperwork still needs to, to, to to be done so the business the enterprise that has to be kept going also to, to make sure, you know, that the family can be supported and can move through this. And I must really call on the work of Embrace Farm, who have done some incredible work, not just in supporting these families directly, but bringing this issue to, to such prominence and, and to, to highlighting it within the sector. OK, now I do want to talk about the new book. Hmm. Anyway, tell yeah. us about the new book, please. 
Well, as, as I mentioned there, I'm, I've, I've, I suppose I've always been very passionate about kind of, you know, um, the whole topic of, of, of farming and mm-hmm. agriculture. And when I first started out, it was all about creating books around the topic of farm safety. And when I used to go in and, and visit school, teachers used to say that to get the children to, to, to read, you know, the topic had to be so important. And they, they really wished that there was more books set around a farm mm-hmm. setting. So I was approached by O'Brien Press um, a couple of years ago during COVID and um, I began creating the series um, Hazel Tree Farm and last February the first of those books Blue the Brave was launched which led me to being um, an author for World Book Day and my book uh, One Stormy Night actually made the top six children's books in Ireland and at the moment we have a situation where no Irish authors are making the top ten in the children's book charts and there's a fantastic campaign called discover Irish kids books at the moment that's really helping to it to address that and just now I have yet another title um to to add to the Hazel Tree Farm and that is The Secret Tunnel which I have just launched just brought out and these books are very special because not only am I you know the the, the scene the setting is a is a farm but the characters are very very heavily connected to me Peter and Kate are the two children they're named after my grandparents I have my son involved in this. I have some incredible people that I've met along the way. There's a fantastic lady called Adele Burkhurton. She's um, a guard out in, in Scarf in County Clare. And I have managed to make sure that I have Adele and her uh, her amazing work that she's done within the farming included mm-hmm. here. So this really is a labour of a, of a love. And, and these books are for children of a slightly older level, about 9 to, to, to 10 plus. They are novels. They are stories and they are for everybody, not just those children living on, on a farm, but for those children who like a story, who, who like to read and who want something that, you know what, is traditionally more Irish uh, than, than what they might have been reading before. So I, I, I really hope people do enjoy them as much as I've enjoyed putting them together. And have you any plans then to go beyond the, the 10, 11 age bracket to try to get up around the 15 and the 16 where you know and I know and yeah. as we look at uh, every single year when silage starts, everybody sitting on one of these tractors we see in the road seems to me to be younger than they ever were before. Yes. Yes, well, I've actually been been speaking quite heavily um, on the whole area of, of, you know, the Mm. access young people have to um, agricultural machinery. Mm. And I think we need to get to a place where we are introducing competency-based testing um, for, you know, because, you know, it'll all keep coming back to the same argument. You know, we need labour on our farm. Mm. We need... we don't have the time or the resources and we, we, we don't have the money to, to you know, get, mm-hmm. you know, full staff. So let's see what we're working with here. And from the age of 14, if children are allowed access to use a farm vehicle just within the, the confinement of the, of the farm, by the time they've come 16, they should have enough experience to allow them to properly sit a test before they head out onto the road, which isn't the case when it comes to a driving license for a typical mm-hmm. car, which, by the way, you have to watch 17 or, or, or mm-hmm. 18. Yes. So I think common sense needs to start prevailing here. Let's get our young children out of those t- tractors immediately and let's start rewarding, equipping and, and ensuring that those drivers who are capable, who are competent, are fully licensed and prepared to take on the, that mammoth task 
Um, you know, it, it, it's mm-hmm. it's always a very emotive top, topic, Jim. It, it really does split people. But for me, common sense has to prevail here. The tractors we have grown up with are not the tractors, you know, that we have now. They are bigger. They are more powerful. They are more complicated. And we need to start respecting these for the, for, 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 for the machines that they are. And we need to respect the fact that those who have a certain competency and maturity should only be the ones allowed behind the wheel. Getting back to the book, finally. Yes. Uh, <laughs> where can the book be bought? These books are available in, you know, it's, it's, I suppose it's, it's, a, it's a phrase we all use, in all good bookshops, but they're also available online through um, my, my publishers, O'Brien Press, through Amazon. Um, and, and really, I just um, ask people to, to go out, to buy them, to enjoy the uh, stories. And, um, you know, hopefully we'll get an, another one out there. My, 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 my son, he had a calf that he bought mm-hmm. with the first code union money, uh, 1360. And I've made sure that I've included her on the cover of this particular book as well. So it, it really is a labour of, of love. I have grown up on, on a farm. I'm living on a farm. So these stories are based on, you know, my, my own life, things that I've gotten up, up to, but also they're based on some of the stories and the chats and the conversation that I've met um, from, from the agri-kids that I've spoken with and done workshops with over the years. And I've actually dedicated the book to those, those children who are such a big part of my life, of my work, of what I do, of what I'm passionate about, and who continue to drive me and motivate me both for their safety, for their well-being, but also the enjoyment and the engagement of everything that, that a farm can, can, can bring to people. That listeners was Alma Jordan from AgriKids. That's AgriPort for this week and for this year for that matter. The next Ag Report will be in the new year. But may I wish you all, my listeners, a very happy new year.